and welcome to this new podcast series from the Scottish Arts and Humanities Alliance, SAHA for short. SAHA brings together Scottish universities, the Royal Society of Edinburgh, and the Scottish Graduate School of Arts and Humanities to promote the contribution of arts and humanities to society. In this podcast series, we speak to a range of inspirational individuals who have experienced firsthand the value of arts and humanities in their lives and their careers. I am Dr. Christina Klopot, and I will be the host for this podcast series. In our first podcast, we talk with Clark McGinn, a world-famous speaker at Burns Suppers. Clark studied philosophy at the University of Glasgow, one of our Saha member institutions. During our discussion, recorded via Zoom, he reflects on the value of an education in philosophy today, and he explains how his degree has helped him in his career in the banking sector. We discuss his passion for Robert Burns also, and the part's role in bringing people together the world over. So here we go. Sit back and listen to our first Saha conversation. Good morning and thank you for joining our discussion today. To start our talk today, I wanted to ask you, when did you decide to do an arts and humanities degree? And what made you choose that particular subject? Uh, that's a good question. At school, at high school, I was very much in the science stream. And uh, when I was looking to come to university, my first choice uh, was to come to Glasgow uh, to read theoretical physics, as it was called natural philosophy. And that old, it was called, it wasn't even called physics then. In the run-up to coming to university in those days, there was a general bursary examination. School students from all over Scotland participated in for a week in Glasgow. And one of the papers was a general paper, which had the logical and philosophical questions in it that were totally alien to the, the high school curriculum. And I can remember one question was, an irrational fear is a fear that is not rational. John fears that his fear is an irrational fear. Is that rational? And that really caught me in philosophy because it's very like theoretical physics. You have to parse the strands apart. And so when I came up to uh, university uh, all those years ago, uh, I did um, natural philosophy, uh, mathematics. And because at Glasgow, and I'm not sure if it's still true now, but philosophy and physics could be taken either as science subjects leading to BSc or art subjects to lead to an MA. And I took as my third subject uh, in my first year, moral philosophy. And that just entranced me. The analytics are the same strength as mathematics and theoretical physics, but it seemed to probe even deeper into making your brain work and making you think. So I moved after my first year increasingly into philosophy and then graduated in moral philosophy as an MA. So that's how I got dragged into it. The nice way of putting that, dragged into it. <laughs> Looking back now, how do you think your degree helped you in your yeah. career? Yeah, I think I think there's two things, Christina. One, at school and at university, I, my hobby was debating. And so philosophy uh, helps you construct arguments, analyze data to build a persuasive case. So when, when I uh, was graduating, 
I joined Lloyds Bank on its fast track graduate scheme. And I found very quickly, if you're in the financial services world, you can't be as good a farmer as the farmer to whom you're lending money. You can't be as good as the shopkeeper or the postman because they live their business every day. So the skill in banking is to be able to step back and analyze what the key risk elements are in that business. Sometimes the ones that the farmer won't recognize because he or she is living in that every minute of the day. And so philosophy for me, you know, a lot of my colleagues had done economics or mathematics or law. And I found that I could ask questions in a different way that would bring us back down to the building blocks of what that business was. And by taking it apart, then you could build it back together again. Great fun. I, I think the uh, debating element helped. Obviously, Glasgow is you know, one of the, the greatest debating universities in the world. Yeah, I had uh, great good fortune to win the British and Irish national competition with my dear friend, the late Charles Kennedy. And so the combination of being able to analyse and then being able to present came together you know, hand in glove. Thank you. Would you recommend students to study philosophy today, thinking oh, of all you've said before? Yeah, uh, Christina, I think it's it's like mathematics. It is just a fundamental wiring of the human brain. I think thinking back in my undergraduate career, I knew uh, some lawyers, I knew some scientists you know, who do a philosophy course as well as the, the studies. And I think it helps you broaden the manner of thinking. And today, we're, we're in a world where clarity of thought, you know, LinkedIn, Facebook, you know, there's just a lot of noise out there. And so I think even more than ever, we really need to have the internal mechanisms inside our own minds to be able to strip away the noise and see what's important in life. Philosophy gives that. It's a building block for law through jurisprudence. It's a building block for economics. Adam Smith, was a professor of moral philosophy and he invented economics. Philosophy is right at the bedrock of all of human endeavor. It can lead, in a sense, to different careers. You don't actually need to be a philosopher if you've studied uh, philosophy. Yeah. That's a very good point. Yeah, I don't know how many paid philosophers there are <laughs> uh, in England. I've got a feeling there's not too many in the Times 100 rich list. <laughs> but as you say, it's you know, like linguistic skills, I think it's part of the hard wiring of the brain. So it adapts the way that your mind works. And then, like I did in banking, you, you adapt it to your professional needs. And that helps you understand people, processes, businesses. It helps you to understand the world in a different way. Something that is quite uh, special to your profile is your passion for uh, Robert Burns. You have written several books on the subject and you gave numerous addresses on Burns Night. Can you tell us how that interest developed? Of course, Christina. I was born and brought up in the town of Ayr in the southwest uh, coast of Scotland, where Burns was born. In fact, Robert Burns spent two weeks attending my high school, Ayr Academy, which is the oldest continuously teaching school in Scotland. It was founded in 1233. So the school was very traditional. And one of the things you can imagine was round about Burns Night. So every single pupil had to learn a Burns poem or a song and recite it or sing it. And the rules were it could be a, it had to be a whole poem if it was less than 30 lines, or you could use 30 lines from a bigger poem. Me being the apprentice philosopher, 
I worked out very quickly that Burns wrote some four-line poems. So that met the rules. Uh, the rector, the head teacher, wasn't very happy at somebody so obviously being lazy, to put it bluntly. And, and so for the school's burn supper, uh, when I was 15, he said, you're going to do the address to the haggis. I'm going to make you learn that poem and perform it in front of the school. The next year I did the Toast to Lasses. The next year I did the Immortal Memory. And then my last year I did the Toast to the School. So every year since I was 15, I've spoken in from one to 12 burn suppers a year. And through that, I've met many different people, all modes and manners of men and women in 17 different countries, 40 cities, the Sydney Opera House. It was one venue I performed in. But everywhere I've gone, people enjoy the party that is Robert Burns. Poetry, the emotion, the story that brings, again, I use philosophy to bring out themes in Robert Burns, not just telling a story, but trying to link it into what we're feeling today. So that has been a real living part and a great honour. I work with the Centre for Robert Burns Studies at the University of Glasgow. And in fact, I did a part-time PhD on the history of the Burns Supper under Professor Carruthers. So it has been one of the very big strands in, in my life. It still is. How has this uh, intersected with your professional career? That's a great question. It really, really has. It came to a head when I was working in New York City for the Royal Bank of Scotland. RBS bought National Westminster Bank, a very big English bank. And there was a big question, how do we tell people about the Royal Bank of Scotland? Now, now nowadays, we know that the Royal Bank of Scotland got into a lot of trouble. Then it was a very different bank. And so what we resolved in doing was a Burns Supper in Houston, Texas, and a St. Andrew's Night dinner in honour of Robert Burns in New York in November. And I became the RBS cultural ambassador, uh, as well as doing my day job. And it was great fun. It was really a chance to say, this is what Scotland is about. And when you start peeling away, that was really where my interest in the history of the Burns Supper came. Because as early as 1812, there was a Burns Supper in Baltimore and Maryland. Uh, by 1820, uh, New Jersey and New York were having burnt suppers at uh, Philadelphia and Boston, close behind. So wherever people had an interest in humanity, they found an interest in Burns's poetry right from the time of his his early death. And it was just a great joy to feel that it wasn't just me standing up and speaking. I'm just part of a 200-odd-year tradition that many people, 9 million people, and Murray Pittock's research assesses nine million people every January celebrate Robert Burns, and I'm one of them. And that that says pretty good philosophy to me. It's wonderful moving to Scotland. I've discovered Burns Night and and this tradition, and then I read a little bit about it and realized just how much it means for people to to celebrate it in Scotland. But as you mentioned outside of Scotland also. It's yeah. one of those traditions that uh, brings people together all across the yeah, world yeah. on that particular day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit also about uh, this recent uh, Robert Burns project that you are involved in? So the Centre for Robert Burns Studies decided to map Global Burn Suppers, a very interesting project. Uh, Paul McGratty was the guy doing the heavy lifting and we launched that this January. And so now People can click on the map and find out where there was a burn supper near them 
Um, you know, we hope to keep adding to that, turn it into a sort of living database. So very exciting. But it, it comes back very much to what you were saying that Burns is Scottish, but he's not exclusive. Uh, he chimes the thoughts and hopes of men and women, you know, boys and girls all over the world. And that's why it's not just expats who support him. But you know, if you go to India or South Africa, to Brazil, you'll find local celebrations about Robert Burns, possibly with some Scottish people who are tagging along. You know that Scottish people like turning up for a party and a drink. Um, but the, oftentimes it's uh, the local inhabitants who are celebrating Burns as much as us. That's wonderful. Thank you very much for sharing all of this with us. Um, Christina, thank you for inviting me and good luck with the rest of the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Saha podcast with your host, Christina Klopot. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others, post about it on social media or leave a rating or a review. You can follow us on Twitter at Saha underscore voice and on Facebook at Saha Voice. Thanks again. I'll see you next time.